Right, let's uh, get this party started right. Uh, we have a map, so I'd mentioned that we're going to have maps. So most of the, a lot of the maps you find of Paul's missionary journeys have all three journeys overlaid with one another, and then a lot of times they'll also include um, Paul's journey to Rome, his last final journey. Um, I think it's helpful to see them in, in separate forms, so you're going to need to keep these. I thought about giving you first, first and second journey because uh, they were on the same page. Well, they were actually on separate pages, but on the same printed, copied page. But I thought, I want to keep you in suspense. Hate to spoil his, his second journey. Um, so we're going to, this is actually going to start next week uh, in chapter 13. But the reason why I gave it to you now is we're going to talk about Antioch, which is up in that corner. So like if this is the Holy Land, you know, like if you go to Michigan, they're like, this is Michigan. This is the Holy Land. And the, the Holy Land is on the inside of your hand. Um, so Antioch is up here at the top um, as the Mediterranean Sea kind of hooks around. So we'll talk about that tonight because they, that's what Luke talks about. So let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into 11 and 12. Uh, Father God, we come before you tonight and... As always, we come with grateful hearts and glad hearts anticipating what this time will bring for us, and so we just come with open hands to receive whatever it is that you have for us tonight, whether it be from your word or from each other, and so we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move among us and in us, that you would uh, loosen our tongues to communicate with each other and open our ears to receive uh, what you have for us, and yeah, just be with our time tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so chapter 11, and it's nice because chapter 11 starts with uh, previously on, as this recap that most of us typically skip over. Glad some people thought that was funny. You know, I mentioned that second service is not the funny crowd, and so... I didn't. I didn't mention. I didn't mention that you guys are the funniest crowd. You guys get the best jokes. Um, all right. So here we go. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem again, if you're gonna go to Jerusalem, you're always going up, and if you're going away from Jerusalem, you're always going down. So just keep that in mind. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely. I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, thinking no distinction." These six brothers also accompanied me, and he entered the man's house, we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to one except no one except Jews. 
But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, and they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And so he did, and he did so. And he said to them, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that the what. Let's try that again. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. lot going on here. Very exciting and interesting time. And also, this is the end of Peter's mention within Luke's gospel. So this is kind of uh, Peter's farewell tour. So again, Peter, uh, last week he has this vision, and then he's obedient to the visions. Uh, Cornelius has this vision, and, and God is opening up wide the spectrum of who can be included within God's family and opening it up to the Gentiles. Now, as you can imagine, 
that doesn't go over well with the other uh, Jews. In particular, there's some debate around this, this term circumcision party. But Peter is, in essence, summoned back to Jerusalem to answer for what has happened. And what in the world, what are you doing on this mission, and who are you welcoming into the congregation with us? Because for the Jews, again, remember, they are God's chosen people. They have entered into God's family through their bloodline. And so part of what, part of what we need to understand here is the Jews are a, a nation. They are the Israelites. And so to be a Jew comes with this great nationalism that exists. And so you don't just get to walk in and gain uh, entrance into the Jewish gathering of people. There are some requirements that you have to make. Um, it's interesting because the circumcision party, when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, if you remember back in Galatians chapter 2, the thing that Paul has uh, with Peter is that Peter, who he calls Cephas in the Galatian letter, which is interesting, again, Peter has three names, um, is that Peter has been swayed away by the circumcision party and is not eating with the Gentiles, and he's distancing himself from the Gentiles. And for me, I don't know how you uh, see these things, for me it comes as this great encouragement that even Peter, he can believe something and he struggles to act that out, and so he needs to be corrected in his, um, not only his beliefs, but also in how he's living them out. So if you read through Galatians and you see um, circumcision party, you're like, oh, okay, I remember that. That's from Acts chapter 11. But anyways, this idea of the circumcision party is this nationalistic spirit, because remember when the Jews go into the promised land, what are they to not do? Intermarry, because the Jewish line needs to remain pure. And so to be a Jew is to be a very specific thing, and thou shalt not intermingle with those outside of the Jewish uh, realm. And so for them to hear that Peter has now welcomed in non-Jews and they have received the Holy Spirit is very, very hard for these people. It's very hard for these people. And if you think of it in, in these terms, and I don't have personal experience in my life, um, but if you lived in a home or just imagined you lived in a home where you are um, either the biological kids of your parents, okay, you're the biological kids of your parents, and your parents decide that they are going to adopt some other children. For, for a child, that brings some very interesting things. And then what if it's the case that your parents growing up were like super hard on you, super strict, you know, like made you wash the dishes, made you do chores on Saturday, and then the new kids that are welcome into your home as children, they don't have to do any of that. They just get to waltz on in all the benefits, they get the Holy Spirit, all those things. There is probably some potential for some animosity. And again, as I'm constantly trying to remind us, what is the number one enemy of the early church? Division. And so here we have another example of there's this potentiality for division when Jerusalem and the people in Jerusalem hear that, that Peter is welcoming in and give in the Holy Spirit is being received by these Gentiles. And so Peter goes up to explain to them what has happened. And he says the whole story, right? Division, all these things. And it's interesting because if you were to do like a story problem, math problem with this, this event, you'd have all these threes. You know, it's like it happens three times. The story gets told three times. There's three people and then there's six people and all these things. But notice after he tells the story, in verse 15, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So Peter is going back to refer to what happened in Acts chapter 2 and how this is, as most people uh, describe, this is the Gentile Pentecost. But then he goes on to say, and he says, And I remember the word of the Lord 
meaning Jesus, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said in chapter 1 before he leaves. And so Peter is trying to call to mind to these people that are skeptical, to say the least, of what has happened. To say, remember Jesus said these things are going to happen, and now they're happening. Remember back in Luke, Jesus says something's going to happen, and then it happens. So for Peter, he has this epiphany, which he doesn't tell us, Luke doesn't tell us in the previous story. But within this vision, he's like, okay, remember Jesus said we're gonna, you know, there's going to be people dreaming dreams and having these visions. I'm dreaming dreams, having these visions. Jesus said this is going to happen with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, If then God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I mean, it's like the ultimate church trump card. It's like, who am I to disobey God? And everyone's like, okay, I guess you're right. I mean, that's in essence what happens. The challenge is, in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about the Jerusalem Council because we think, oh, neat little bow. They just decide, the Jews who've been so exclusive for so long just decide, yeah, come on in, all you random Gentiles. Welcome to the family. Except they're not exactly uh, that excited. But at this point, they are amazed. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so they glorify God because for them, again, it's this, it's this fascinating reality, right? Because literally for centuries, since the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 is when Abraham enters the story. We have the, the covenant of circumcision. Every single generation, if you want to be included as a family member of the Jews, every male has to go through circumcision. And then all of the sudden, a bunch of randos get to waltz in free. I mean, the animosity that it would exist in that locker room of those men you're like, oh, okay, yeah, you're one of those guys. You ha I mean, I'm not even sure you're really a full Jew here, right? Because as uh, Luke points out, the name is starting to change because the association is starting to change. And so it begs the question, what do we do when somebody tells us a story about God working in their life and what does it take for us to believe that God, this is actually God and, and or vice versa? When we have an, a particular experience of God, how do we share it with somebody else who literally has no frame of reference around who God is or how he moves? And as we talked about, uh, I remember a few weeks ago, when the people were afraid and they were kind of hanging out on the sidelines of Solomon's portico, we have this embedded fear of, um, I don't want to be associated as like one of those weirdo Christian Bible-thumping people. But what did Jesus tell the disciples that they were to do? Way back in Acts chapter 1. What is their number one thing they're supposed to do? Witness. Yes. Can I get a witness? Yes. That's why we do it in church. It's like, can I get a witness? Like, so Jesus is basically saying, if you're going to be a follower of mine, you must be a Pentecostal. Can I get a witness? You're like, ah, I'm not so sure about that. So Peter is witnessing to what God has done in his life, and he is fulfilling exactly what Jesus has called him to do. Now, just because he leaves the story by name doesn't mean he, he somehow stops working. Now, we move up to this place called Antioch. So again, if you look at your map, okay, Antioch is way up here at the top. Um, and if you look kind of geographically, the white is the land, okay, the dark, I know it's not color-coded. But if you think about where Antioch is at geographically, if you're coming from Europe, um, which, you know, Italy includes Europe, or any of that northern area of the world, and you want to go, like, say, we're going to go down to Africa. You know, you just want to saddle up the horses. you got to trail the blaze. Right? Stephen Curtis Chapman. Yep, I didn't go to that concert. I guess I'm not that great of a Christian. Um, 
Haven't watched The Chosen either, so two strikes against me. Oh, right. Yeah, see? People are more fired up about that than about the salvation of Jesus Christ. Oh, my word. I forgave you for the Christmas thing, but you said you haven't seen The Chosen? Oh, my goodness. We'll pray for you tonight. Please do. What were we talking about again? Oh, okay. So geographically speaking, if you're coming from Asia, kind of from uh, where we think of as China and those areas, and you were headed um, to Italy or any of those places, you're probably going to end up going through Antioch. So Antioch is this super big city, this hub. And uh, Peter gives us this call, or Luke gives us this call back to remind us, remember back in 6 and 7, Stephen dies. Um, Because Stephen has died, there has been this great dispersion um, of those who are following Jesus. And many of them have wound up in this place called Antioch. And I just have to say this because it it has struck me so, so interestingly. It came up in reading group the other night, and I know this is going to be highly um, provocative. Some people don't even like that word. But we see uh, this dispersion of the gospel, right, to all these ends of the earth. And somebody uh, mentioned this. They were talking to their family. And, you know, they're just having some casual conversation about the crisis at the border. You know, like easy stuff that families just talk about. Um, And he says to his family, what if God was bringing all of those migrants to the U.S. so they could hear the gospel? What if? And his family was like, yeah, no. (laughs) Like, oh, um, okay. Well, in this case, um, there's this just giant dispersion that's happening, and a bunch of them are hanging out um, in Antioch. Now, we hear this word Hellenist, and and we might think back to, again, chapter 6, what's happening in 6. The Hellenists are not getting fed. Uh, They're not getting, their widows are not getting fed with the rations. Um, Chances are this is not only a specific group, but it can also be used as a more larger group. Hellenist meaning anyone who's a Greek speaker uh, that would have been residing in um, Antioch. So Barnabas goes up to Antioch. It says here he goes, you know, the whole down up thing, Jerusalem, all that. And what has Barnabas heard? Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent to Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So what is happening in Antioch is the church is growing and thriving. And so Barnabas, who is known as what? The encourager, thank you. He goes up. He's this leader within the church. He gets sent up to Antioch to check out what's going on. And he comes in and he sees what's happening. And depending on how we read this, okay, I love having these discussions around the Bible and meeting with people and reading the Bible with people because we all come with these different perspectives. And so when we read certain words, we, ha- we have certain things that come up in our brains or from our experience. Um, And so if you're ever like, you know, I'm looking for a group of people just to sit down and read the Bible together, I'd love to be a part of that. And so um, today there was this really interesting question, this idea around exhortation. It's because it says he exhorted them to remain faithful. Because for some of us, when we hear this, um, Imagine this, Barnabas shows up to the church and he says, wow, I mean, look at all the great things that are happening here. God is clearly at work. I'm just amazed at how faithful you guys are being uh, to what God is doing. And let me encourage you with some things that you could also be doing. That's one interpretation. Some of us hear that and they're like, so we go home. So what Barnabas have to say? Well, he just said that we aren't doing a very good job because he said we need to do this and this and this and this and this and this, right? And those of you who are like, yep, that's exactly what he said. 
Like, well, what about all the encouragement that he said? Well, that doesn't even matter. What matters is all the things that we need to be doing that we're not doing. So we have this interesting interplay of Barnabas doesn't come up to evaluate what's happening in Antioch. He comes up to, to encourage the believers and to spur them on to uh, this steadfast purpose that God has intended for them. And what is the steadfast purpose that God has intended for the early church to do? Spoiler alert, look a little bit up on your quiz, and we've already answered this question. To bear witness. Yes, exactly. And so they are to bear witness to what God is doing in their lives. And so they are remaining faithful to what God has called them to and to their steadfast purpose. Now, along with that is this interesting thing that's going to happen here in a second. And that is this prophecy in verse 27 that happens. This prophecy that happens is, again, this fulfillment that Jesus said, there's going to be you know, visions and prophecies. But the prophecy is that there's about to be a famine. So now, notice part of what the purpose of the church has been up to this point going back to six and Barnabas, is to provide the resources that those who are a part of the body need. So the purpose of the church is to bear witness, steadfast purpose, bear witness to what God is doing, and meet each other's needs. As we talked about on Sunday, part of uh, John writes his letter to his first letter in 1 John, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, Barnabas is encouraging, knowing what's coming in that uh, process. And so then Barnabas goes up to find Paul because what's about to happen is Barnabas and Paul are going to do some serious, serious work. And then we get this interesting uh, end of 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, which brings about some interesting conversation. Because What often is read here is this is when the disciples identified themselves as Christians, which is not true. So imagine Antioch, this huge city, big pluralistic society, and you have this weird group of people. Nijay Gupta just wrote this really interesting new book that I haven't actually read yet. You're like, how do you know it's interesting? Because I've heard him talk about it twice. It sounds very interesting. And it's... um, is it weird religion or strange religion? He, he wanted to name it one thing. His editor said you have to name it something different. It's about how the early church was really strange, was super weird. Because within the context of Antioch, how they would treat one another, how they would worship God, how they treated God was completely out of the ordinary. And so you can imagine within this context... These people are like, okay, you're one of those guys or gals. You don't live like the rest of us live. And so they create this name, and they start calling them basically Messiah people, Christ ones, which, again, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, which means Messiah. And so you have these Jews, this subset of Jews, and now these Gentiles that are now identified as these weirdo Messiah people by the outsiders. And this term actually only comes up two other times in the entire New Testament. Why do we want to talk about this? Well, part of the question becomes there has been a very interesting conversation recently about what do we even do with this label? You know, we as human beings love to create labels or titles or buckets in which we can place people. Like, that sounds like a stereotype. Okay, you could use that word as well. So we have a very, you know, if you're going to sort, like, let's say you're one of those guys that I'm not, and you in your garage, you have, like, a series of um, screws and or nuts and bolts that you have all sorted out. Not me. I'm trying, just not me. And so you're working on a project, and you say, I need a 9 16th bolt. If you're like me, you take the jar, 
and you spread it out on the table, and then you start screwing to determine which one is the 916th, or you find the, the socket set, and you're like, okay, that's a 916th, we're good to go. Very labor-intensive, and I admit, this is just not who I am. So we do this with people, right? Like, okay, you're a 916th, so I put you over here. Okay, you're, you know, you're a, a, a flathead screw. Who even uses those anymore? Scott, do you even use those? No, you don't. Who uses those? Okay, so that's like a weird small group of people over there. And then here are like the real, you know, lag bolts. And over here, you know, so we like group everyone together by these labels. And so unfortunately, this word Christian is a easy label that we can slap on ourselves or on people so that we can then um, say, oh, you're a Christian. And what I mean by that is often different than what other people mean by that. So, for example, I've told this story before, but as I've found that people don't remember most of my teaching, so my stories can be told many times. I was out uh, for my friend's wedding in Jackson Hole and uh, had met a new friend who was a friend of his who's from Argentina, and we had spent all this time together. And one night, um, after spending a bunch of time together, Waco says, Eric, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. He just doesn't even skip a beat. Looks me dead in the face, and he says, no, you're not. And I was like, Waco, I know you're from Argentina, so like, you don't fully get the like, American culture. That's not really some, that's not like, oh, what do you do? And you're like at the, you know, whatever, and you just say, oh, I'm a pastor, as if that carries any sort of like gravitas. No one says that. No one makes that up as like a job title. It's like, what do you do? Well, I'm a doctor. And, and what you mean is like, you know, you have a PhD, but you want people to think you're a doctor, like a medical doctor. And so you say you have a doc you're a doctor. And I was like, no, Waco, pretty sure that's what I do. <laughs> but for Waco, growing up in Argentina his whole life, he has a category of what a pastor is. And for him, I did not fit that box of uh, pastor box. So he was like, I don't know what to do with you. Likewise, in Antioch, what's happening is these people see this weird group of people and they're like, we don't know what to do with you. You're not Jews because Jews don't associate with Gentiles. And these Gentiles, they don't really worship God like y'all are worshiping God. So we don't know what to do with the Gentiles. We don't know what to do with the Jews. And so we call them Christians. And so for us, I think it's important for us to understand what do we mean when we say that I am a Christian? Does it mean that I am a follower of Jesus Christ? that I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or has it come to mean, you know, that I was born in the United States of America and my parents took me to church, therefore I'm a Christian? And unfortunately for many people, they experience quote-unquote Christians in a particular way so that now when we say that we're a Christian, we meet somebody in public and they're like, oh, you know, tell me about yourself. And you're like, well, I'm a Christian. And they're like, ooh, okay, um, and they have a whole subset of ideas about what it means to be a Christian. Or, in other circumstances, you find yourself out and you're associating with people and you're doing things and you're acting a particular way and somebody says, wait, you're a Christian? Like, I know a lot of Christians and Christians don't act like this. And you're like, well, I'm pretty sure that's how we're supposed to act as followers of Jesus, it's like, well, all the Christians I've met are this. Ding, 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 ding. And so we have this very complex relationship with this title of Christian. And, you know, there was, again, this big conversation. The Holy Post had this whole series of, of conversations with uh, various individuals like Russell Moore and Lecrae and asking basically, why do you still identify as an evangelical Christian? And so, super interesting listen. What do we mean when we call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ, or in this case, a, a Christ one? So, we get this interesting uh, famine prophecy that it does happen. Um, and it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to their ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand 
of Barnabas and Saul. So what is the purpose of the church? It's to take care of one another and bear witness to God. That's exactly what's happening. So then Luke gives us this really interesting interjection. He, he uses the ambiguous time of about that time. It's kind of like uh, when, when I say, um, how long is it? Nikki says, how long is this going to take? And then whatever I say, she adds at least double that time. Whether it's a project, me running someplace, it's like, well, when are you going to be home? You know, about this time. Okay, so you'll be home at 7. I said 5. Okay, see you at 7. About that time, Herod. Now for us, we think, what's the first Herod we think of? Baby Jesus, 8 pounds, 6 ounce, baby Jesus, you know, Herod killing all the babies. This is not that Herod. This is the grandson of that Herod. You're like, well, why do they have the same name? Well, uh, why do we name our children the same names that we have to pass on that lineage? So Herod is going about and he's persecuting the church, um, as we know that has been happening. And he kills James, the brother of John, with the sword, which means he beheaded him. Um, and it pleases the Jews. And then he arrests Peter. And, and when he arrests Peter, the implication is he's arresting Peter not to give him some fair trial. He's arresting Peter to execute him. Yes? Excuse me. Any of the Jews that really didn't like this new Jesus thing? So, again... Um, if you're a Jew and your Jewish brothers and sisters are trying to convince you that anybody can come in now, you probably don't like those people anymore. So you would like, more than anything, to end this kind of mini-Jewish uprising. Remember back in, when they were um, in Jerusalem, they go before the council, and some of them are like, we got to deal with these people. And what does Gamaliel say? He says, if it's from God, there's nothing we can do. If it's from man, it's going to fizzle out. Certainly, now those people are like, we got to do something about these people. And Herod can step in. He can act as the agent of the state and take out these Christians that now they're being called um, in a way that allows the true, that's how they would identify themselves, the true Jews to be spared from what's happening with Well, certainly at this time, there was just a whole lot more of them. So Herod is overseeing this area. And so there's Roman occupation of Judaism, of Israel. But when you think about who's going to create an uprising and try and fight and cause problems for Herod, it's going to be this group of Jews because there's just more of them. I mean, you look, when we look back to you know, why did they not arrest Jesus? What were they afraid of? The crowd, right? They're afraid of this uprising happening, and they, the biggest thing that they want to maintain is, right, the Pax Romana. They want to maintain peace. And right now, that we, we get all excited about, like, the number. You know, there was 3,000 people, and then there was, you know, a couple more thousand people. And so we're like, the church is booming at this time. Well, when you start from a small number and you add 3,000, that's a big thing. But when you're like the Jews, you've been living in this area for a long time, there's just a whole lot more of them. And so they have more power. You know, they have more control of the people. Um, and so they are excited. And certainly at that time, Herod does a nice thing for them. And then he can go back and say, I did this nice thing for you. Now you need to do a nice thing for me. So... Um, so Peter goes in prison, and what do the rest of the people do? They pray together earnestly. So then again, we go down to uh, verse 12. They were gathered together for prayer. Now it's fascinating because what did Luke just tell us is happening to leaders of this group of Jesus people? They're being killed. Stephen, killed. 
You know, John gets his head lopped off. All these people are being imprisoned. And so the prayers are going up with great earnestness because they know how this story goes. Peter gets arrested. What's going to happen next is Peter is going to be executed. So the church comes together and they start praying in great earnest. And so we get this very fascinating description of Peter and he's in prison and he's locked up like max security. He's locked up to these other guards. And for you rap fans, he's two chains is in there with him, which is, I laugh at every time I read that. Like, um, but they have him on lockdown. And so in the middle of the night, okay, notice the contrast. The church is out doing what? Praying. And what is Peter doing in prison? Sleeping. He's dead asleep. And he has no clothes on. <laughs> I love that part of the story. The angel's like, dude, get dressed. We got to go. <laughs> the church is terrified about what's going to happen to Peter. And what is Peter's posture? It doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter to him so much so that he is conked out dead asleep. And this is like the deep sleep, like, you know, you're 45 minutes into a nap and your dog barks sleep and you feel like you've literally been sleeping for a week. No, just me? Okay. The angel shows up, light shows in the room. I mean, I can't even handle it when it's a half moon, let alone a full moon. Peter is in the cell, the light shows on him, still dead asleep, still snoring. It's just amazing. He's chained up. You know, I'm like, the blankets were kind of messed up last night. I didn't sleep real well. Peter's like, locked down, chains, dead asleep. And the, so much so that the angel has to whack him on the side. <laughs> I love that. The angel whacks him on the side. Get up, get dressed, let's go. And what does Peter think is happening? This is an amazing dream, right? Not even Peter believes it's happening. Peter believes that God can do these things, and then when they're doing, when God's doing these things, Peter is like, I don't even think this is real. <laughs> it's like, what is happening? I mean, the gates are just opening. You, never ha you ever have those dreams where you're like, this is awesome, I just want to keep sleeping. And then you wake up and you're like, just go back to sleep. Just go back to sleep. Just go back to sleep. Because that was really fun. And Peter's got the opposite. He's not dreaming. He's awake. He's, and, and the doors are opening. And Peter comes to himself. And he's like, now I'm sure. Like, as if what else would have happened? The Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So he goes to the house of Mary which again, when we talk about the, the importance of women and men within Luke's narrative, he doesn't go to the house of whoever Mary's husband is. Mary is an important person. She is probably wealthy, and she is the signature person that, that is at this house. All these people are praying together. They send Rhoda. Poor Rhoda. You know, I got to tell the, yeah, I'm just going to tell this story really quick. Um, Poor Rhoda. She gets to the. She gets there and she's like, "We're we're praying for this thing." And then I went to the door because I heard a knock, and and it was almost as if our prayers had been answered. <laughs> Maddie was in first grade, and um, Wyatt, Nikki had to drop Wyatt off at preschool, and uh, and so she Maddie had left something on the counter, and so Nikki takes it to Eagle View um, to to Maddie's class, and Maddie's person sitting by her neighbor sitting by her says, "It worked." It worked. And Nikki's like, what worked? Maddie prayed that you'd bring her homework, and you brought it. <laughs> You're like, why did your first grader have a phone? She didn't. Or it's the time when Nikki and I were just literally so dirt broke. We have this baby, and we just don't even know how we're going to put food on the table. And, and literally, Nikki and I are praying. We're like, God, we don't know how this is going to happen, but, but like something has to happen. And then 
someone prompted me to drop off this check for you. And you're just like, okay, okay, time out. What? Like, what? And you pray for something, and then you're like, wait, it actually happened? Have you ever had that moment? Rhoda's like, hey, I think Peter's here. And they're like, oh, no way Peter can't be here. We're, we're still praying that he comes, that he's here. No, he's not. Why is it the case that we live in this place of belief and doubt at the exact same time? Because that is the human condition. And for many of us, we live in this place where you know, we pray for something, like John to keep his head on his shoulders, like the John in the story. <laughs> I just didn't want to make anything unclear, okay? Just <laughs> Eric was saying that, yeah, no, no, John, the guy who lost his head in the story, we're talking about the Bible here. Wow, this sweater is really warm. <laughs> yeah, you don't watch The Chosen. You said John's losing it. Pets or heads are falling off. Um, We've been praying that John would keep his head, and then John loses his head. Oh, my goodness, what do we do? We pray for this thing, and it doesn't happen. And so then we, we can either lose heart, or we just keep praying more earnestly, and then God's like, okay, this is an answered prayer. And we're like, nah, I don't think so. Like, no, it is. It's an angel. No, it's Peter. And he keeps knocking. I mean, just imagine that. You, this whole prison break, the last thing you need to be doing is standing on the street, like making noise in the middle of the night, like, hey guys, I made it out of prison. Could you let me in? And he says, he describes to them everything that's happened. Tell these things to James and the brothers. And then poof, he's gone. He's, he's like Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. He's like, super great story. I just, you know, basically was rescued from the jaws of death. I got to go. He's got stuff to do. And now when the day came, there was no little disturbance. Okay, all these things. And so these people were put to death. Herod moves on. And Herod thinks he's kind of got the cat by the tail here. And much like we see in uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? When God isn't given his due credit, there oftentimes comes uh, within the Lucan story, there comes this immediate and swift punishment. It says, immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. You're like, no wonder all those people, you know, when they get an award, the first thing they say is, you know, I just want to thank God. They've read this story. They're like, I do not want to be the next Herod. Can I get an amen? <laughs> yes, So why is Stephen killed? And then we see these other people that die, but then Peter, is, his life is saved. Is that the question? Do you want, uh, well, what happens as the result of Stephen's death? The dispersion, Okay. What benefit would it be to the church for Peter to die or for Peter to live? Right. So do we need another martyr? If so, then Peter probably isn't going to make it. Peter makes it. So at this point, it seems to be the case that the survival of Peter is certainly the benefit of the church. Because if Peter dies in this instance, what is Peter? He is the spearhead for what within the body of Christ? What just happened? Who just got brought in? The Gentiles. All of us. So Peter goes, he has this vision, he goes before the, you know, before the group, 
He's like, you guys wouldn't believe this just happened. And God has done this thing. And now he dies. How easy would it be for them to be like, well, Peter's gone. Interesting idea. But, you know, let's go back to the way it was. And so the saving of Peter's life has this multifaceted thing going on. The death of Stephen has some very significant consequences that are benefits to the body. And Luke chooses to tell us these stories because he's moving the story along in a particular way. And also notice, Peter survives and then vanishes. Peter's name is never mentioned again in Acts, and he seems to vanish out of Luke's story in name. So, yes, he physically is alive, but his seeming impact on the narrative goes away. And then Barnabas, who sort of comes out of nowhere, his narrative arc is going up, and he's bringing Paul in, and we're going to see the two of them continue to grow. And then also we see the introduction of this other character who we were just at his mom's house, John, uh, Mark, coming into the story. And so um, that's a very interesting question, which, which I think is, you know, we wrestle with these questions. The, the challenge for us with the narrative is we're getting a limited perspective on, on the peril that's happening, on the risk that's happening, on the people that are dying that aren't mentioned um, and the people that are being saved, physically saved, that also aren't being mentioned because Luke only has a certain set of um, space here. So Herod dies in this very interesting way. He gets this, this set of worms. Josephus, the great ancient Near Eastern historian, uh, explains that he, he didn't die immediately. He probably um, was overtaken by worms. What a great way to go. I mean, just super fun. Um, you're like, I think I've seen a Grey's Anatomy about that. Yeah, I think it was like season three. Um, but the word of God increased. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. They were up in Jerusalem and they, uh, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so then we launch off next week um, into Paul's first missionary journey. So you can go to your groups. If you need a group, let me know.